Welcome to a Rocky Star Podcast. I'm Brian Argot on a Rocky Star Podcast. I talk with guests from all around sports to talk about their journey to sports. And today I'm talking with my good pal, Ben Golliver. He's a writer over at the Washington Post. He covers the NBA nationally. And he just came out with his new book, Bubble Ball, talking about the, the NBA during COVID when they were stuck down at Disney World. And he talks about the whole bubble experience there with the playoffs and the finals. Uh, go check out his book and uh, it'll be in the link below. And I can't wait to dive in on how Ben Golliver started. He started way back in 2007 with uh, just a blog, actually. Uh, not just any blog. It was uh, the draft Kevin Durant blog. And uh, he started then and he's made all his way now to the Washington Post as a national writer covering the NBA from east to west coast and it's a truly amazing story and i can't wait to dive in here with ben golliver hey ben how's your day going brother you know it's going really well today's day three of uh you know three straight games for me here in los angeles it's been eight games at staples center uh in the in this seven day period it's kind of insane we're really back in the full swing of uh the NBA season's been awesome. I got to see the Miami Heat the last two nights, and we get Anthony Edwards and, and Carl Towns and the Timberwolves tonight. So I am, uh, you know, running on all cylinders. It feels great. I know. I bet, man. Especially, you know, there's a lot I want to get into today. I want to talk about your most recent book, Bubble Ball. Uh, you know, kind of going on that. I want to take you back to uh, your career on how you got started and, you know, just not writing, but how you uh, fell in love with sports and, you know, basketball in particular. Uh, you know, would you kind of share us that journey, how you kind of fell in love with basketball at a young age? Yeah, so my dad actually was uh, attended Michigan State at the same time as Magic Johnson. So I think he had the basketball Jones, you know, pretty much implanted to me at a very, very early age. And I was kind of a 80s baby. So as I was growing up, it was sort of, you know, right aligned with Michael Jordan's, uh, you know, explosion onto the global sports world. And I happen to be raised in Beaverton, Oregon, which is like the you know global headquarters of Nike. So I was just getting, you know, MJ propaganda pumped into my blood from a very, very early age. And I think that's really what got me excited. And you combine that with the that era of the Portland Trailblazers was the Rip City Blazers. And they made the finals a couple of times. They had a bunch of really popular players uh, locally, whether it's Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Buck Williams. Uh, Kevin Duckworth and so you know being able to go to some games here and there but then also just to kind of immerse myself in that Nike MJ Gatorade uh, you know type brainwashing culture is, is kind of how I got into basketball and you know it was interesting I you know I went to college 3,000 miles away uh, in, in Baltimore and there's no team in Baltimore and uh, you know there, there was the Wizards were nearby and the Sixers were nearby and I go to games every once in a while but it really wasn't until I moved back to Portland after college and the Blazers, you know, got the rice, the number one pick in, in 2007, where I was like, wow, this could really be something I do for a career. So I started a blog called the Draft Kevin Durant blog, which, you know, obviously from the name, you can kind of tell what the idea was there. <laughs> but I was trying to convince the Blazers to take KD. I was just all in on this idea of KD. And instead, they took Greg Oden. And I got my heart broken, man. I was watching that draft. I was sure they were going to take my advice and they just completely ignored it. But it was a great, you know, way to get my foot in the door, you know, test out the writing and just kind of one thing led to another. And the next season I was able to work my way into a press credential. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of a self-taught journalist. You know, I went to school for creative writing, uh, never took a journalism class. It just kind of, you know, it just put my head, uh, put my head down and kept writing and, 
uh, 15 years later, it's, it's been amazing. I got to see Katie win some titles along the way and uh, obviously cover a lot of really interesting Blazers seasons. And then, you know, moving here to LA, I got Kobe's last year and the LeBron era and the Kawhi era and everything else. So it's been kind of a wild ride. Yeah, no, you, you are covering probably what I would say four, five of the best NBA players of last, I don't know, since Jordan 30 years. And yeah, yeah, no, this is uh, I mean, we're ground zero for basketball town here in Los Angeles and, and Staples Center has just been such an amazing home for it. It's like literally every single night you get a good game. And I love how when guys like LaMelo Ball earlier this week or you know Jimmy Butler got hurt, but like a Tyler hero. I mean, everyone comes to this L.A. stage and especially during this pandemic era where the media is it's not quite the same interactions that you get, um, you know, before the pandemic where guys are in the locker rooms doing interviews and all that. And so I think the players, even more than usual, are kind of like treasuring that stage atmosphere. And so it's just been really, really fun to watch some of these head-to-head showdowns. And then, of course, you got the story with Westbrook, where it's like, hey, his homecoming, you know, he wants to kind of make the most out of that. And he becomes one of the most talked about players in the league, probably for good and bad. So, um, you know, it's it's a great spot to be in if you're a Hoops fan. Oh, yeah, man. It's uh, definitely been, I would say, I mean, the Clippers and Lakers both being in the playoffs last year well last few years and you know now looks you know still like possibly going to be that way paul george is carrying the clippers which has been pretty incredible him being a homegrown kid oh yeah no i love going to the clippers games i was there last night i mean they get yeah. down early i don't know if you saw this so steve bowler is so mad the billionaire owner of the clippers <laughs> is so mad that the fans have been showing up late to games you know there's traffic there's a million reasons why you don't get to a game on time right so he is now doing a giveaway for $10,000 to a random fan who is selected based on the idea that they have to be in their seat before tip off, standing up and cheering and wearing Clippers gear. So he's like almost like paying to, to create this atmosphere around the group. And, you know, it's been a real challenge for them. And that's part of the reason why they're building the, the new arena in Inglewood is because they want to have their own vibe, right? They don't want to be that, you know, quote unquote, younger brother franchise, to the Lakers. Um, you know, that's probably always going to be the case, but, I'll tell you what, like the crowds there at the Clippers games this year have been strong. As you mentioned, Paul George is playing at like an all NBA second team level right now. I mean, he's been really, really good getting no attention for it. And, uh, you know, hopefully some fans are coming home with some money. Too. I mean, it could be a win, win, win all around. You know? <laughs> it, it, no, it's, it's really incredible. And Steve Ballmer, I mean, him, him being, I mean, what, second to Cuban, kind of like he has that Cuban vibe from the, uh, you know, middle part of the early 2000s where he was just up at every game and Ballmer's, you know, just desperate to, you know, want to bring a title. Like I really, him, him cheering all the time. I just want the Clippers to bring a title to LA for them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like the the best chance we had at Lakers versus Clippers was actually like the first year, yeah. um, you know, right after basically the pandemic year that wound up being in the bubble and we didn't get it because the Clippers blew the three, one lead, right. But that's the showdown that kind of everybody's been wanting, LeBron versus Kawhi, you know, Paul George, Anthony Davis, and, and uh, you know, Balmer versus the Bus family. You know, it's kind of like the NBA new money versus the NBA, you know, aristocracy, right, the old money. Um, right. We've never gotten that showdown, but, uh, you know, it's still possible, I guess, this year, depending on how the seats shake out. But I do think one major story from this season you know, you, you go back a couple of years, it seemed almost a foregone conclusion that it was going to be Lakers Clippers deep into the playoffs. Yeah. This year, there's a lot of depth in terms of the contender pool in the Western Conference and then so many new faces in the Eastern Conference. It's really been, 
you know, tricky to almost peg, like, you know, who are the favorites right now? Like, who do you really think is going to come out on top? And, you know, of course, Brooklyn's going to be in that mix. Milwaukee's usually going to be in that mix, but they haven't raced out of the gate. And then I think the, a lot of people just assume, hey, look, the Lakers are going to be one of these last teams standing. But the Westbrook fit has been so questionable. I'm not entirely sure that's going to be true. You know, I think it's it's very possible that they run into some serious issues as early as like the first round of the playoffs, right? So um, it's been a very unpredictable and, and kind of exciting start of the season from that standpoint because it's it's not going according to script quite yet. Yeah, I guess the biggest surprise from them after watching a few games is I thought Westbrook and, and AD would mesh more. And it just, they haven't seemed to find a groove just yet. It's still really early, right? But it's a definitely a big question mark on what's going to come the next, you know, three quarters of the season. Well, let me ask you this. How many superstars has Westbrook meshed with over the course of his career, right? <laughs> I mean, we could probably say, you know, back in the OKC days, it wasn't perfect with KD, right? right. Um, you know, it, it didn't work with Harden. Harden had to go to Houston. Westbrook gets to Houston and it doesn't really work between the two of those guys. Uh, I thought Westbrook and Beal, they kind of made it work at times, but not certainly not on a championship level. Right. Um, and I also don't think it's working very well between LeBron and Westbrook right now, either, even though LeBron's been hurt. So we haven't got to see a ton of it. So, you know, you tell me what's the common variable in all those relationships, right? It's like, if you don't fit with all these different kinds of superstars, you know, it could possibly be that you're the problem. Um, you know, Anthony Davis's comment the other night, I thought was pretty interesting and I'm sure he was joking, but this idea of like, we're trying to help Westbrook with his turnover turnovers. And then he looks at the box score and says, wow, well, he still had eight, but at least it wasn't 10, you know, at least Westbrook didn't have a quadruple double. And that's how I feel watching the game. Some of these turnovers are just inexplicable. And a lot of them are in really big moments late in games. And you can see the body language from his teammates. You know, a lot of his teammates are just like, what the heck is going on? Why is this guy making these kinds of passes um, in these moments or racing up the court and, and not, you know, slowing it down and looking for his teammates to keep people involved? So I would just say, I guess the polite way to say it is they're very early in the adjustment process. They're still feeling each other out and they haven't got there yet. Yeah, and you bring up a great point about the turnovers. It kind of reminds me of it in the playoffs last year with uh, Schroeder when um, Schroeder was doing these unpredictable, just why, whether it was a wild shot or these turnovers or passes, and it just kind of got the team frustrated and it showed in their body language when they went out against the Suns. And that's definitely what you're seeing, what you've seen through this first part of the season already through with them. Yeah. I mean, Westbrook is, you know, Schroeder supersized, right? I mean, yeah. I think that kind of like Schroeder's, uh, worst tendencies, I think Westbrook, you know, probably yeah. has, uh, you know, in, in, even more. And then I think that some of the stuff that Schroeder does in terms of like locked in on ball defense and, you know, scrappiness and all that, that's not really a Westbrook strength either. You know, I mean, he got lost. I'm sure you saw the Oklahoma City game where, you know, Westbrook races out to double team for no reason. He leaves Lou Dort wide open. Lou Dort gets a dunk in, in crunch time, completely uncovered because Westbrook decided to freelance. Uh, you know, that's not buying into a team concept on defense. That's certainly not listening to your coaching. That's just kind of doing whatever you want to do. And I think that there's been some real breakdowns on that side as well. I mean, ultimately, the Lakers are going to have to win with defense this year. You know, I think that the fits on offense, like they're going to need to have really good three-point shooting. They've definitely got that from Carmelo. You know, Wayne Ellington is, is a possible, you know, big-time shooter for them. Um, you know, and there's a, a few other guys who can, you know, certainly chip in but they're going to have to win with much better defense. And the defense has just been pretty bad to start the season. And I think that's what Vogel was so frustrated about. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I never really, when they went and got Westbrook, I kind of scratched my head. I was like, I, you know, I, I saw the deal go up right before for the buddy healed for Kuzma and somebody else. They were still going to be able to keep, I think, uh, Caldwell Pope and that uh, before they sent him off to Washington. But uh, I kind of, I mean, I would have much rather saw this team with uh, Buddy Heald and, you know, they could have kept Pope and it still kind of ran this back with what it was. Now it just kind of looks like this is going to be, it's just going to be hard to move Westbrook you know, if you have to. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the only idea that I've ever had with a Westbrook trade would be to trade him for John Wall again, because John Wall is just sitting there, right? And yeah. like, okay, could he give you a better fit with uh, LeBron? I mean, it's possible. At the same time, when you trade for a guy like Westbrook, you know what you're getting into, right? I mean, the turnovers, the decision-making, all that stuff is part of the package. So I don't necessarily think the Lakers are surprised with how this has gone, right? I think it's more like, do they reach the point by the trade deadline where they just conclude, like, this is never going to work? And, you know, it might not get that dire. I think the, the Lakers' other big problem, though, that people aren't quite talking about enough is LeBron's health. Yeah. You know, LeBron's about to turn 37. Um, you know, the, the minor injuries are what's concerning because, you know, that can kind of add up and eventually become, you know, bigger concerns. And if the Lakers want to win a title, they need LeBron healthy for two straight months for that playoff run. Right. He has to be out there every single game. And what we've seen in the last couple of regular seasons, you know, going back to the groin injury during his first year with the Lakers, LeBron's had you know a much harder time staying healthy night after night in L.A., than he had at any point earlier in his career. And so I think that's a real concern because, you know, Westbrook's not going to lead a title team. We already know that. I think Anthony Davis is, is not going to lead a title team as the number one guy. This has to be on LeBron's shoulders. They have to have like kind of a, a big three that functions and works together. And LeBron's got to be the, the face of it. He's got to be the franchise player. And right now, I mean, he's spending most of his time just like, you know, dapping up celebrities courtside and like sort of serving as almost like the MC of Staples Center, right? You know, he's kind of like welcoming everybody to the games. And yet, you know, he's, he's sidelined. He can't play. And I think that's a big, uh, it's a big factor that could shape their season. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, you know, LeBron, the GM, I think it was a big part of the reason why Westbrook came to town. I, you know, when LeBron kind of formed some of those Cleveland teams, uh, especially like the last like two years in Cleveland, uh, bringing in Wade and all those guys, like, you know, it's just kind of, you know, been head scratchers. Like, and I get, and I would say, from all this is this going to be interesting to see if he's going to win another title because I, I really hope he does but I wonder if um, kind of him stepping up and like wanting to be a part of the, these uh, GM decisions is going to be a big effect on why he wouldn't well for sure I mean he does tend to be his own like biggest advocate but then sometimes also his own worst enemy right I mean if yeah. you're constantly making short-term trades to get superstar talent you're tightening your window that you can win because you're usually depleting the depth of your rotations. Right. So we saw that in Cleveland um, and even in Miami really too, it's like yeah. the first couple of years you're together, everything's great. But if somebody starts to get a little bit older, or there's injury issues or you lose people in free agency um, or, you know, personality issues come together like they did in Cleveland where Kyrie wants out, you know, by the fourth year, it gets harder to be a top flight contender and really have a, a full, quality rotation around your core stars and look they miss almost everybody who's gone from last year right I mean the Lakers could certainly use Alex Caruso no question about it right they could really use KCP in terms of his perimeter defense and they could use Kuzma in terms of his uh, you know supporting scoring 
uh, as well. So, and I mean, Harold to a certain degree, maybe they're okay without him, but the Lakers also haven't answered their center question at all right now. Right. I mean, they're, they're probably even worse than they, they were last year when you're looking at Deandre and Dwight. So um, you add all those things up and you do have to kind of point back and say, all right, well, who was the architect of these moves who wanted to go grab that third star? And, you know, it does seem like, you know, Polinka really wanted the star power and, and LeBron, you know, of course he's going to be consulted on a decision that big. And, I just wonder if it was a little bit of a panic response. You know, you go out in that first round of the playoffs, you start to wonder, do we have enough? Can we trust some of these guys, whatever else? And you talk yourself into a deal that already looks pretty regrettable. Yeah, no, I totally agree with everything you just said. And I want to get back a little bit on basketball a little bit here, but I want to talk more about you, Ben. Like, you know, for what, how you mentioned earlier, a little about your story, when you started the, uh, the Kev, your Kevin Durant blog back in 2007, you know, about drafting Durant, like I want to, because obviously media and how everything's changed now with podcasting, everything's just a lot different than it was in 2007. Podcasts was probably a year old at the time, maybe two. Uh, for someone that's looking to start kind of fresh without, even if they're fresh out of school or whatnot, how do you, what do you suggest that they get into to kind of start off fresh? Um, if you're trying to get in like, from a podcasting standpoint or a, a writing standpoint, uh, you know, I would say, first of all, you know, you just need reps, right? So like my first two years as a writer, and I think most people would agree, like you don't really know what you're doing. And same deal with podcasting. Like uh, there's just going to be a certain number of hours you got to get under your belt. I mean, people talk about like the 10,000 hour theory and Malcolm yeah. Gladwell and all that. I don't know if you need to do 10,000 hours of podcast <laughs> to figure it out. So like, don't, don't be scared off from that standpoint. But I would say you've got to just start, you know, uh, acting, you know, acting like you're the, you have the job you want, right? You know, people used to say like dress for the job you want, right? So like if you want to be a stockbroker, you better be wearing suits all the time. So you start to believe and, and convince yourself that you're that guy. Um, I think there's a little bit of that with podcasting and writing too. It's like nobody's stopping you. It's free to write on the internet, right? It's free to podcast basically. So uh, I would say, first of all, jump in. I would say, second of all, you know, become an expert on whatever your subject matter is, because that's going to help differentiate you from everyone else. You know, I don't try to write about the NFL or college sports or, you know, anything else like that. And I actually covered the Olympics in Tokyo this year. And I found myself when I was trying to write about anything besides uh, basketball, I was like, you know, it was like college 101, you know, I had to go back and like <laughs> make sure I knew the rules and all that kind of stuff, because I focused so much of my attention on the NBA and I do think, you know, becoming, you know, an expert in your field will help you build an audience because people will sort of, you know, find out, find you to be a trusted person and someone that they can kind of count on and, and rely on. And the other thing I would say, too, it's, you know, demand is constant. I mean, people always want to listen to stuff. They always want to read stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of competition. Right. So you have to be making sure you're putting out a quality product regularly. Um, you know, and so that means, well, if you don't feel so good on a Monday or Tuesday, I'm not going to do a show this week. Well, you know, you probably just cost yourself some listeners, right? And, and same deal with writing. You just got to write constantly. You always got to be putting stuff out there. People want to, you know, you want to be, you know, on people's minds or they're, they're expecting your stuff. And that can be a very draining process. It's really easy to burn out. You know, a lot of journalists talk about, you know, work-life balance issues and, and how you can kind of keep motivated and and uh, energetic uh, in this kind of a profession and it's a real challenge for everybody and i would say you know if 
you're feeling scared off by that, then this might not be the profession for you. If that sounds like you, if you're kind of the person who says like, oh yeah, I just want to throw myself into a project and go all out. Well, then it, it might be the, the perfect fit for your personality. And, you know, it certainly it was for me. I mean, I've got a lot of fond memories of doing 3 a.m. game recaps about completely meaningless regular season basketball <laughs> games, you know, 10, 12, 14 years ago. Because to me, they weren't meaningless, right? To me, it was the most important thing in the world. And I, I think that's the way to do it. You know, find your passion and, um, you know, find your expertise and, and go for it 100%. Yeah, you know, it's like when you started, there's absolutely, you know, you're, you're starting a blog at that point, which is, you know, so not, I can't even imagine a lot of people knew what blogs were at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. When I first started it, I had to email links to it out because there was no Twitter. So that tells you how long ago it was. So, um, you know, we, we, certainly no Instagram. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I was sharing anything on Facebook back then. Probably not, because that probably would have been seen as like, you know, uncouth. Like you would have been too <laughs> self-promotional, you know. So I remember having to send out links and, you know, hoping that other sites linked you up because that was the best way to get traffic. And, um, you know, social media definitely changed the game. And that's the other thing I would tell people. It's, you know, don't necessarily do what worked for somebody like myself five or ten years ago. You know do what's working for people right now. You know, I think if I was like a 20 year old, I'd be trying to just be on TikTok all day long, right? Seems like an awful lot of people on TikTok. What kind of content can I do to like make that audience um, excited and engaged? You know, I've tried to get on Instagram. I was super late to Instagram, but I find that it's really good with connecting, uh, you know, with podcast listeners because they want to follow your life. And they want to be along with your Instagram story. And uh, you know, if you go on vacation, they want to see your vacation pictures, like all that kind of stuff. Right. So that's been a real win and something that I maybe wouldn't have expected or even been comfortable with, you know, say 10 years ago. So follow the trends, you know, and make sure you're you know, kind of on the cutting edge, because, uh, you know, again, what worked in 2007 when there's no Twitter is not going to work in 2022. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you uh, brought up a great point. Social media has, I mean, changed dramatically whether if it was five years ago and 10 years ago now, it's like putting all your content on Instagram now is a no brainer. I think it was like five years ago, maybe it was like probably still kind of getting into that. It was like into that uh, influencer. <laughs> now, now the, now everyone's an influence influencer. All athletes are definitely on Instagram. I, I wouldn't say in 2015, 14, when I was on there that it wasn't really as publicized as that. But now it's like the go-to for everything. Oh, for sure. And, you know, like, I think that sometimes every time there's a new platform, right, there's a little bit of a hesitation where if you're a journalist or you're like a, uh, a newspaper or an online outlet, are you going to be received well if you go on there and start sharing your links and sharing your work content? Or is this more like a safe space, like a fun place, right, where you know, it's almost like tacky to be sharing links, right? And I think I, I see that sometimes even on TikTok where it's like, you know, people, not a lot of people are on there being like, hey, read this story that I wrote, right? It's more like, how can you have like funny, lighthearted content that will just kind of get people to, to follow you? And like, for example, at the Washington Post, our TikTok guy is great. And he does these hilarious like one man skits. And very rarely is he doing anything like subscribe to the paper or like read this story. It's mostly just like, hey, I'm going to give you like a goofy take on the news of the day, right? Right. And um, and I think that usually as time passes, though, it becomes more and more the default of like, all right, well, people go to your Instagram story because they want to be able to find whatever you wrote most recently. Right. They go yeah. to your uh, Instagram because they want to see 
like what's your breaking news or what's the topic of the day. And so, um, you know, obviously you want to be in line with what the expectations are of each platform, but certainly like, I'll put it this way. Like we launched a podcast company in 2020, um, greatest of all talk is like, you know, it's a completely entrepreneurial company. I mean, we, we built it from the ground up, came up with the name and all that. I, I love it. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I don't even know if it would have worked without Instagram. I'll put it that way, right? Uh, that's how important Instagram was for us. And it continues to be. And, you know, it, it, there's a possibility it would have been successful, but not to the same degree uh, if we had just skipped Instagram. But I found for even things like when we sell T-shirts or if we raise money for charity, you know, we were able to raise like $15,000 for charity almost exclusively off, off Instagram in like a two-week period. So you know, to me, I'm a real believer in the, in the social media networks. I probably don't tweet enough anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's like an absolute necessity. You've got to have that social media presence. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, being present on social media for anyone that's looking to get in sports, it's, you have to be there. And I kind of want to even go back a little bit further, you know, so you write the blog back in 2007, what was your first uh, job in, in, the, uh, in basketball? So after that blog, I uh, basically I signed up with Blazers Edge, which is an SB Nation um, uh, blog, you know, it's a team site. uh, And I basically for the first year or two, I was it's almost like a volunteer basis, freelance type basis where I was getting paid, you know, almost like a stipend, you know, here and there. But mostly I was just doing it because I was able to get the, the credential and the access to be in the building. And I did that for a number of years. And then I, I my first like full-time job, uh, I worked at CBS Sports as an NBA writer and blogger. Um, you know, my role kind of changed a little bit while I was there, but um, it was right after LeBron and the decision. And there was just this huge online interest in the NBA. And so a lot of sites that summer kind of just staffed up people to write about, you know, potential rumors and stories and all that. And so I was at CBS um, for two years and then I joined Sports Illustrated. And, um, you know, after a couple of years at Sports Illustrated, I was still doing the, the Blazers work because I was living in Portland. But, you know, eventually I pretty much just stopped doing the Blazers stuff, focused entirely uh, on writing for Sports Illustrated online in the magazine. And, um, you know, I was there for, you know, six or seven years, I think. And then I, I joined the Washington Post in 2018. Yeah, I- so I know it's you have a you've been at a lot of incredible places I mean a lot of dream jobs and I you t- you went on something earlier when you were talking about you were getting paid stipends what's might not be attractive to people you know so I think there's a lot of uh instant gratification that people want nowadays that are young and wanting to get into maybe our the sports industry or whatnot but um you know how how was it during those first few years covering basketball, um, getting paid stipends? Where was that like always enough? Was it sometimes where you like questioning like, God, is this ever you know going to pay off? Um, yeah, so I would say when I first started at Blazers Edge, you know, I was doing it almost moonlighting, you know. So I guess people call that a side hustle these days. But I had a day job. I was working like a marketing job, and so you know, I'd be in the office at eight a.m. And then, you know, right about 5 p.m., I would, you know, fight traffic, get down to the game, cover the game, stay up late to write my story. And then, you know, maybe I'm getting four or five hours of sleep, you know, on on game days. And, uh, you know, I'm waking back up and going back to the office the next morning. I mean, um, you know, it was all about love of the game for me. You know, I really wasn't that focused on money. I had no idea where it was going to lead. I just thought it was so cool to be around the sport and to be one of the few people who actually got to go in the locker rooms 
that I like, you know, in hindsight, you know, if I had like, an, I don't have an older brother, but if I did, they would have been like, bro, like you're doing all this work and you're not making any money. Like what the heck is wrong with you? You know what I mean? And I think my parents probably asked those questions at some point. Um, and, you know, it, it never really came to that for me. You know, I think by the time that I was starting to itch and say like, okay, you know, is this going to be something I can really do full time? You know, CBS came along and kind of solved that question for me, you know? And yeah. so I, you know, that, that was able to kind of give me the ability to no longer have to work a day job, to no, no longer really do anything else, but, um, you know, sports writing. And to me, that was a dream because I was like, wow, you know, and I was getting opportunities to go on local radio and to go on local TV and to talk. And, you know, th- to me, it was like, you know, I was living out of fantasy and, and in some ways I still feel that way. You know, I, I, that, that feeling really hasn't left. I mean, I get excited every time I get to see my name in the, in the paper or, uh, you know, on, a certain part of the website or whatever else it might be. And, and that's why, you know, to me, it's, I said earlier about following your passion. I mean, I always loved writing and I always loved basketball ever since I was a small kid, like I said, and it just, I was sort of clueless. Like I never put it together. Like, Hey, you know, you might really like, right. Uh, like writing about basketball. These are your two interests. You know what I mean? So right. I, I see a lot of younger journalists and, and younger podcasters, probably like yourself who aren't quite as clueless as I was, who maybe have a clearer picture of like, Hey, this is really my passion. And, you know, I think that, you know, hard, I'm, I'm an example of nothing else that hard work can, can, uh, can help you get there. You know, I, like I said, I put a lot of long hours into it and, tried to perfect my craft as much as I could and you know things you know broke right for me but uh, you know sometimes I just feel like I won the lottery as well because I, I know there's a lot of people out there who want to do it and um, you know it's a, it's a very demanding and unforgiving industry yeah no for, and for the listeners that I, I just want to make that like point clear like you are working a full-time marketing job then once you're done you're literally going out there for another five six hours hustling you got to get up early the next day and go do it all over again that's not easy. And that's just sheer dedication and hard work. Like you mentioned, I just wanted to point that out for people that are listening to this. It's, you know, because sometimes like it's stuff that's hidden, you know, it's like below oh, yeah. the surface. And like, I just wanted you to bring that up. Cause I definitely know from, especially around that time, it, it was not, there was not just an easy way to make all this stuff happen. Like there is today. Well, Oh, for sure. And also, I remember I was, you know, I feel like I'm the insider now because like I write at one of the biggest newspapers. And I think that like, you know, a lot of times the people who ask me to like come on shows, you know, it's like very traditional media, which I'm always love to just you know talk to people who are just like really into sports like yourself because it kind of keeps me balanced, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, sometimes it's like you're talking to CNN and they're like, you know, explain whatever this is. And it's like, well, I can kind of tell by your question that, you know, maybe you're not like super into the NBA. Right. But, and that's no shot at anyone in particular. I'm just saying sometimes the, the traditional media just comes at it from a, a more generalist standpoint rather than the specific standpoint. But, you know, when I was at uh, CBS sports, you know, I could have just written about the NBA for CBS, but I kept writing at Blazers edge for years. And so again, I was, I was so used to working wow. multiple jobs that I just kept doing that. And, you know, for me, there were situations where like, you know, like I remember one playoff game where I wrote, you know, like a 2000 word story for Blazers Edge about the playoff game because the Blazers were in it. But it was such an important playoff game that I had to write another story for CBS Sports. And like you can't plagiarize yourself. So it had to be like a completely different story. You know what I mean? So there was times where I was pulling double duty off the same games or, you know, I might have to. Uh, one time I went to a Blazers game when I was at Sports Illustrated. And it was the night Steph Curry went absolutely nuts at Madison Square Garden, right? So I'm trying to write up a story about Steph Curry going nuts at MSG 3,000 miles away and then rushing into the locker room for the Blazers game to make sure I can kind of get their post-game comments and then staying up late again to, to write those stories. So, 
Um, you know, I do think the passion is what's going to keep you sane and it's what's going to keep you focused. And, you know, if you really love sports, it's not just for media people, by the way. I mean, the yeah. people who work for the teams, by and large, whether it's the social media people, the PR people, the business side people, whatever else, they really love sports, too. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of how they can justify, you know, time spent away from your family. Um, you know, I've worked basically every single Christmas for the last 15 years. You know what I mean? Um, right. So that's that's like one example of the sacrifice. And you, know, you hear guys like LeBron complain about it. And everyone's like, oh, come on, bro. Who cares? You know, but when you don't get to celebrate Christmas uh, like most people do, it, it is, a, you know, it is a different uh, part of the lifestyle. But for me, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, especially after 18 was this his 18th season, 19th season? <laughs> yeah, 19. Yeah, he's given up a lot of Christmases. He's given up more Christmases than me, that's for sure. Or he actually strained his groin on Christmas like four years ago. I've never done that as a writer. That's that's one thing I can say. I've never never gotten injured on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that that was like uh his first year, I think, with the Lakers, right? When he did that. Yeah, yeah. I was up in uh up in Golden State. And I mean, that changed that entire complexion of that season. You know, the Lakers were just getting some uh momentum going and and you know here this huge showdown and then boom he goes down and he's out for whatever it was six weeks or something and um you know it was it was tough but um yeah you know i think you know your your, your point here about grinding is the right one you know i'll give you one more story on that so you know, i was in the bubble last year for 93 days uh living at disney world and uh so when i got out i took one week off to kind of clear my head and it was tough in the bubble man like i put on weight i was like you know super isolated and you're kind of starting to just get like you know down to the dumps a little bit because the the rules were so strict and you, you could never leave you couldn't go for a drive or anything like that i mean you're pretty much locked in the bubble right so i took one week off and then i started writing my book and i spent the next uh basically 10 or 11 weeks every single night seven nights a week um, you know, writing the book because I had a deadline of January 1st to kind of put the, the manuscript in. And so for me, I broke it down from a word count standpoint. I realized I needed to write 1500 words a night every single day if I wanted to get the book done for basically from October, uh, mid-October until January 1. And I thought I was going to have free and clear time to do it because I didn't know when the NBA season was going to start. I thought it was going to oh. be delayed because of COVID. Right. Then they changed it up and they're like, hey, you know, we got the NBA draft, here's free agency, here's training camp and everything else. And so, you know, again, it was it was right back to this idea of, of working two jobs. Right. So I was, uh, you know, I was writing for The Washington Post and then, you know, nighttime would come. I'd get to about seven or eight o'clock at night and I would strap in and write for usually about four hours every night to get that section of the book done. Um, and then, you know, go to bed and, and start it up again the next day. And I, I have the spreadsheet as proof. I mean, no days off, uh, you know, it's just trying to make sure you get those word counts done. And I, I got the book in on time. I felt great about it, but, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, hopefully I'm not coming across like, you know, too, too psychotic here or too, uh, you know, no. too OD as some people like to say, but, um, uh, I think that's the, you know, it's, there's a lot of people out here who are working that hard, you know, that, yes. that's kind of the standard when it comes to sports. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, it, it takes over like you would, some people could even imagine some people just would rather just stay at their nine to five than, than go probably cover sports sometimes because, you know, the hours are, I guess you could say wonky. Yeah. The times, the days and stuff are, you know, they're all over the place in any. Uh, oh, for sure. For sure. And it messes with your sleep and, you know, you have all these, I mean, all the things that the players have talked about, you know, in terms of like, how can they optimize their sleep schedule? How can they optimize their travel schedule? 
how do they get their diets right? You know, I've actually found myself, especially as I'm going through my thirties, um, you know, facing all the same questions, you know? So I've been actually like real careful about, okay, like make sure I go for a walk, you know, a certain number of miles every single day. I try to make sure, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I had to start doing that. That's a funny story. So I spent a month in Sandy, uh, San Antonio covering the 2014 playoffs and my per diem was just enough to cover uh, a steak, all you can eat steak dinner at a Brazilian steakhouse in uh, San Antonio every single night. So you can imagine what I would do as a kid, you know, in my late 20s, like, this is great. I can go have as much red meat as I want, you know, every single night. So I wound up like, you know, putting on a decent amount of weight over the course of that month. And, and the Spurs kept winning and I kept going back to this restaurant. And like, by the end of it, I was like, oh my God, I need to detox from meat. So uh, that's how I became a vegetarian. It's the best decision probably I've ever made from a health standpoint. Um, but, you know, as you go, you start to realize like, well, if you're traveling a lot, you're not eating as well when you're on the road. Right. So, um, you know, how can you tighten things up here and there? How can you make sure you're getting your protein and not, you know, just subsisting on carbs and that kind of stuff? How can you cut out the junk food late at night when you're stressed out writing on a deadline and, and you really start to break it down? And of course, I'm doing this on an amateur level, right? This is just for writing. I mean, imagine what the NBA players are going through when they're trying to do this on the professional athlete level. But um, I do think there's a lot of parallels. And, you know, I always tell people when they're coming in as writers or podcasters or, or aspiring media people, it's like, make sure you've got structure and balance to everything you're doing, because the workload will unbalance you. And you need to make sure that you can kind of keep yourself in a good mind frame. And for me, that means anytime I get time off, you know, I'm out in the wilderness. You know, I, I like to go to the biggest, emptiest places I can find, uh, national parks, uh, you know, whatever else it might be like that, just because so much of my life is spent, you know, in, in small rental cars and airplanes and arenas that are filled with people. And so, you know, you try to find those types of ways to balance yourself and that can really help you get through some of the tougher times. I totally agree, man. Uh, I mean, a lot of my time is when my biggest stress reliever is uh, running. My girlfriend makes fun of me for it, but I, I just love to run. It's uh, you know, a great time to get peace and quiet or if I want to listen to sports or whatever. But I, yeah, I'm always going to Angeles Crest and finding a hike. It's always. Oh, there you go. There you go. Tremendous. Yeah. Love it. Love uh, that. Yeah. No, don't let her get you down, by the way. It's why she <laughs> hates, man. You got to get her on board. She should be running with you. Uh, she hates running. Yeah, I, I, you know, running's not for some people, so. <laughs> that but yeah uh there there's a i, I want to go back and you know you, your time covering the blazers and uh who was your favorite player to cover on the blazers I, I have one player in particular that i loved watching um around that uh 07 to 12 range who is your favorite player to cover i'm guessing it's brandon roy am i right of course yeah brandon roy man yeah yeah no he's the only answer to this question um you know one of the first times so when I was first covering the team, I was doing a lot of just watching and listening. And I still actually kind of prefer that, um, you know, from a report, reporting standpoint. I, I'm not the guy who's trying to grab the microphone and be on TV and ask a million questions. I, I like to observe. That's like more my style. And so I spent a lot of my time, especially early in my career, just kind of observing and watching guys' habits. I love to go to games early, see how guys are warming up, who's taking it seriously, who's not, who's really engaged with their coaches, who's not. And obviously, Brandon Roy is just like a consummate professional, right? I mean, everybody would say that about him. But one of the first conversations that I actually had with him was after a game in which I, I think he hit the game winner or maybe it was like a really late dagger. And I remember talking to him about just the mentality of, uh, you know, performing in high pressure moments and why, why he enjoyed that and why he wanted the ball 
and why he trusted himself and why he inspired trust from this coaching staff. And for me, it was a little bit out of my comfort zone, like I said, because I was asking these kind of direct questions and, you know, he was in such a good mood because he hit the shot that he was just really talkative. And I've, I've never forgotten that conversation because, you know, it's a lot of the same type of uh, positive self-coaching that we heard from Kobe Bryant yeah. or from Michael Jordan. You know, this idea of like, look, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. And what's the worst thing that ha can happen? You can miss. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to calm my mind so that I'm ready for these moments. And, you know, I, I trust my skills. I study my opposition. I know which moves are going to work. And then I go out there and do it. So to me, it's not like that crazy. It's, it's mostly just, you know, you're executing a plan. And to kind of hear him break it down like that. And remember, this is not a guy who's ever won a title, you know, right? This was not, I mean, he was a lottery pick, but he, you know, he was partly because he had stayed in college for so long. And so he was not some like overwhelming number one overall prospect type player. And just to hear the amount of thoughtfulness that he put into his craft and you, know, you just sense that he was figuring it out as it was happening and he was just really, really content and happy and it was all coming together for him it was a really cool feeling. And then, you know, he winds up getting the big max contract and he really seemed destined for big time, big time stardom. And, you know, a lot of his peers would say that too, you know, guys would say, Oh, he's one of the toughest players to cover in the league, or he's one of the best two guards besides Kobe. I mean, we've heard that from a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, to watch the downfall side of it from the injury standpoint was heartbreaking. And I also remember press conferences with him where you know, he's holding back tears uh, because he doesn't know why he can't keep his knees right. And, uh, you know, I actually blew my knee out in college. So, again, it's it's not that I can put myself in his shoes, but you have that kind of touch point where you can sort of relate to him a little bit. Right. And I just, you know, I, I had my doctors tell me, look, if you want to be able to walk until you're 70, stop playing basketball. Don't play pickup, you know, just uh, find some other way to exercise. And you know, that's fine for me. I'm just, a, you know, a pickup schmuck. Right. But this guy's a multiple time all star who's hitting daggers, and get 50 point games. And to have the sport taken away from him it was so painful to watch. So um, I will always remember him as one of my favorite NBA guys to watch play. And, and, and I cherish the, the few conversations that, you know, you were able to have with him because he was a very popular guy in Portland. You know, it's hard to get kind of time with him. But I did write one tribute to him. You can go look up. It's called Brandon Roy Could Cook. And it was just kind of talking about like, hey, if you need a bucket, in the all-time history of the Blazers franchise, he's right there at that top of the list to go get you that bucket. And, you know, of course, that was before Lillard came along. And so some people would say, well, you know, maybe that's Lillard's uh, title right now. And, and some of the old guys would say, well, don't forget about Clyde or don't forget about Bill Walton. But, you know, for a whole generation of people, B-Roy was the answer. Oh, yeah. And he was awesome. I remember I forgot who they were playing the playoffs. Must it, maybe the Spurs or the, the Mavericks. But, man, he hit, this, he hit the game winner. It was, a, it was an awesome series. Um, I don't remember if they ended up winning or not, but he hit the game winner and he was just, you know, you really thought he was going to come onto the scene then. I think he had already, he was already battling through his injuries and, you know, it sort of came, came off that. I was like, Oh, this is going to be great. And like, it kind of reminded me a little bit. I mean, Roy, uh, obviously is, he had to retire because of the injuries, but like remember uh, early on Steph Curry had his uh, ankle injuries and, you know, just couldn't seem to get it right. And, uh, Everyone, I mean, no one expected him to blow blow up on the scene the way he did. I was always kind of a fan of Curry, just like just from uh, when him, him and uh, Monte Ellis were playing with each other, and then Curry just blew blew up. And uh, I remember when Roy had that game; it was it was a 
really tremendous is watching. I was like, cool, this guy's going to be awesome. Him and LaMarcus Aldridge, which is going to take over the, the league, I thought, in the West. Yeah, you know, for me, one of the lessons from that era of covering the Blazers is you've got to remember to treat all of these guys as independent players and people. Um, you know, as you pointed out, Steph Curry had maybe more injury issues than Brandon Roy early in his career, and yet he's become three-time champion with the possibility to add more first ballot Hall of Famer. He's in the conversation as the best point guard of all time, right? So he's one independent case, whereas Brandon Roy maybe some earlier success with good health, and then it just, you know, craters off the face of the planet. You know, another example for me was Greg Oden, um, where, you know, I got to report on his early career, and he just fell off a cliff basically immediately and was never able to pull it together. And, you know, you, you see Joel Embiid come into the NBA, and it's like first two seasons, he's just not out there. And I'm thinking, well, this is Greg Oden part two. He's never going to be able to sustain health and have it work. And yet MB now is, is one of the top 10 players in the league. He's, you know, carried a franchise in the playoffs multiple times. He's got a really good chance to make the hall of fame if he continues as he's going. And so he's written his own story. And it's very easy when you have those personal experiences with players to, to make the mental shortcut and say, well, Joel Embiid's the next Greg Oden, right? Steph Curry's the next Brandon Roy. I mean, obviously different injuries, but you get what I'm saying. And, um, you know, the longer I've done this, the more I've realized that every person's story is different, you know, and, and you're never going to, um, you know, just see two of them play out the exact same way. There might be similarities, but you got to avoid falling into that trap. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great point to bring up because especially nowadays, like with, with social media, Twitter and all that, I mean, when one, one thing happens that, <laughs> that everyone's quick to throw in their points and, you know, it's like the overreactions and stuff, it's like, you know, whether if it's this season or not, people are overreacting like, oh my God, what's wrong with the Lakers? So it's like, there's 82 games, let it play out. Let's see if then we'll, you know, be the judge of what actually happens. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. People or athletes can create their own stories in one way or another. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the overreaction stuff, but hey, look, I'm not hating on that. That could be fun too. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it just kind of depends on what role you're in. You know, I guess I meant it more from a writing standpoint where you don't want to just, you know, write people off and, you know, say something that is going to be remembered forever as a, as a big miss. But I do think part of the fun of podcasting, it's like you're a little bit less beholden to history. You know, like if we have some crazy headline of like, oh, you know, uh, Lakers have to trade Russell Westbrook today. Like if I wrote that and then, you know, he winds up playing great for two months, that's going to get thrown back in my face constantly, but you're on a podcast. Maybe it's a little bit of a different expectation. The format's a little bit looser. You could talk about, Hey, here's five possible Westbrook trades, or let's say maybe John Wall for Westbrook again. And, you know, it's, it's not quite as serious. So I guess it goes back from a, you know, a media side of you do have to be a little bit versatile, but also, um, you know, you got to hold yourself to the standards of the different you know platforms that you're on. No, exactly. Um, before I let you go here, uh, who do you think's gonna what, who do you think's gonna play each other in the finals this year? It's a great question. I mean, right now the West has just got me bamboozled. I, I really, <laughs> I don't, I don't trust the Lakers. I don't because uh, I've watched a lot of their games in person, and I'm worried about LeBron's health. Um, you know, I talk myself in every year like an idiot to the Utah Jazz. And then every year there's some reason where that kind of blows up in your face. Um, I, I'm not a real believer in the Suns. You know, they caught me by surprise last year. I think if, you know, you, you really just said, hey, push, come to shove, give me an answer. I would probably say Brooklyn and Utah. Um, but I don't feel good about either one of those right now. I mean, that's, that's the fun part of this season. It's been really 
uh, tricky to understand. And, you know, Brooklyn might not get there if Kyrie never comes back. So, um, you know, I tend to trust, uh, you know, Kevin Durant's talent. You know, I think maybe now that I'm rethinking this, I might actually say Brooklyn and Golden State. Uh, You know, Golden State's had an amazing start, amazing record. I'm not sure they're as good as their record. But the idea that they're getting Clay back, that they're going to be able to have some young guys that they can work in as the season unfolds, and the idea that Steph is playing at a super high level right now, I mean, MVP favorite level, right. um, you know, it's either him or Durant. Um, it's hard to bet against those guys. And, I mean, that would be an incredible story. You know, if it's the former teammates, you know, doing battle, uh, KD versus Curry, that would be awesome. Uh, but, again, I mean, that, that could easily twist, you know, you know, Draymond the other night knocked knees, you know. Like, if he's out, if, if that's a more serious injury, boom. I think that takes Golden State out of that spot, right? So, right. Um, you know, it's, that's why predictions in November can be tricky. Oh, yeah, m- most definitely, most definitely. Like, like we all mentioned earlier, it's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for my sake, the longer the Lakers are in it, you know, generally speaking, the better because it means less travel for me. Uh, you know, I get to hang out in L.A. more. And, you know, last playoffs, even though it was the pandemic, I had a great time going to Milwaukee and Atlanta and Philly and Brooklyn. Um, but, you know, that those miles do add up. So, if, you know, if uh, if Anthony Davis had stayed healthy, you know, maybe the, the Suns run wouldn't have happened and we would have been in L.A. a little bit more last year. But, you know, all it takes is an ankle. That's one thing I've definitely learned over the last 15 years. You know, you got an ankle here or there to change the whole series. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And LeBron's injury from – you know, he, he was never able to get into playoff shape uh, after his injury from last season. Totally. No, he wasn't the same guy. And uh, I hope for his sake, he gets one more really good postseason run. You know, I, I don't want this to kind of peter out quietly and slowly. That's how it tends to go, though, yeah. even for the greats. You know what I mean? Um, so we'll see. Uh, definitely. And, uh, you know, last thing here is, uh, you know, greatest of all talk. I like uh, where did the idea, where was it inspired from? Tell us about it. Well, we were so Andrew Sharpe, who's my co-host, and I, we were at uh, Open Floor together and uh, for uh, Sports Illustrated. And you know, Sports Illustrated had a bunch of staffing changes, and so you know, he was uh, you know looking to kind of transition careers. So he basically became a lawyer. And we were just saying, all right, well, let's keep our own podcast going. You know, we don't need to do this through Sports Illustrated. And uh, we were debating different possible names for the show. And uh, you know, as I said, I grew up as an MJ stand, and so the goat stuff was really resonating at that time and really any time. I mean, you look around right now, there's like a drink called Goat Fuel, and then there's like a, a website where they're selling clothes called the Goat. I mean, the Goat has really become part of the the common parlance. And I was just thinking, well, like, is there anything that we can do to kind of play off that? And it was like greatest of all takes, greatest of all talk. I mean, what's the right way to do this? And it just, you know, popped in my head one day and we ran with it and, you know, we got a great designer to make a goat logo. And, you know, it was pretty funny. I was in Iceland uh, for a little vacation recently and I was actually able to go to a goat farm wearing my t-shirt <laughs> that said, you know, greatest of all talk. And I met some goat farmers and they were just like, who the heck is this guy? What's he even talking about? You know, so they were, they were glad to, you know, share some, uh, some goat love with me and some wisdom, which was nice. And that was pretty funny, but um, you know, we, we've had a good time with the show. I think we're in, it's our third season, um, you know, because we started it right in, in January 2020, right before the pandemic. And, you know, it's been going real strong. And, you know, we just it's a really fun community of, of uh, basketball diehards who, uh, you know, who tune in. And you know, if people are interested, they can go to, um, you know, greatestofalltalk.com and, and sign up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to link a few of the uh, articles, as you mentioned here on the podcast today as well. Uh, to the show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that you haven't already said? 
No, well, I would love to know who you think is going to be in the finals because you asked that. Yeah, I, you know, I actually think uh, Milwaukee is going to either uh, repeat, uh, go there, and either Golden State. And I still, and as we mentioned, I still think LeBron's going to play his way into it. I, I think he's going to definitely manage his load a little bit more and get ready for the playoffs. He, he knows how to do this. And I think last year was, if that didn't at least pop an epiphany in his head that he can't play a full season like this anymore, that uh, just kind of, I think they'll get enough wins. And even at whatever seed they'll be, and then he'll just take those go with it. You know, he, he knows what it takes. Well, see, you know, that's a, a win for NBA fans too. Cause you know, if it's Milwaukee versus Lakers, then you get, I call that the Schlitz versus the Glitz, you know, that's uh, Giannis in the, in the Midwestern market versus LeBron and Showtime. Right. Yeah. But if you get, Giannis versus Warriors, then it's the two guys who stuck it out with their franchises, right? It's Giannis versus yeah. Curry. So that's an awesome matchup too. I think, you know, any combination of Brooklyn, Lakers, Bucks, Warriors is basically a huge win from a viewership standpoint. I think people would be really invested and interested in that. Um, and that's no disrespect to the other teams, but I think almost any way you make that combination, like matchmaking style, it would become a win. Do you have any idea where do you think Ben Simmons will go? Do you think... I heard, you know, the Celtics, I don't think it's going to happen. They would be crazy to trade for him for at least Jalen Brown anyways. Yeah, no, I just think that all the trade rumors that have come out in terms of like what Philly is asking are insane. Um, ben Simmons' market value is not nearly worth that. And so I pretty much think that uh, everything that we've seen so far, basically to me, has been smoke. I mean, I think that there is some level of interest in him, but certainly not as like a franchise cornerstone type of player when you yeah. watch his playoff track record he's just not that guy and so you know all these things like cj mccollum and three picks or jalen brown and whatever else it's like no that's that's fantasy stuff that's what you know philly might be thinking but um you know you look at this track record and you watch how things have played out here these last couple months and you know it's just really hard to see teams investing real assets and resources into them so i you know i, I think we're for now we're in a holding pattern and we'll see if, you know, Philly changes its stance, but uh, you know, it's, it's been a real mess. It's been very unfortunate. I was at that game seven where he melted down and didn't want to take the dunk and was missing free throws and was getting booed. And I said it the very next day, there's no way he can play for the Sixers again after that. And so far that's proven true. Oh yeah, man. That was, I, I don't know. I've been watching basketball since like 98. <laughs> I don't think I just, it's just, it's so weird, man. It's like uh, dropping a wide open touchdown pass. It, I just, it's just so weird. I, I don't know. <laughs> Not taking that <laughs> shot was like one of the most mind bottling things I think I've ever seen. No, I hear you, man. It was, uh, he's one of a kind and like, you know, trying to figure out where he's going to get traded, you sort of have to get into his mind and that's, a, you know, a challenging place to be. Yeah, no, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where him, what happens with Kyrie, and what, uh, you know, seem, I, I think the trade deadline this year is going to be a little uh, active, I guess you would say. Yeah, I think buyout market, too, because you've got the Nets, Lakers, Warriors and Heat all potentially in the mix. And those are four markets that guys like to play in, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, we saw a lot of shenanigans like the Blake Griffin and the Aldridge and the Drummond went last year. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw more of that this year. You know, a guy like Eric Gordon you know, see whether he can get traded or has to be a buyout down in Houston. It's, you know, he's got money on his deal for next year, so it probably has to be a trade. Uh, but, you know, there's a number of guys in that type of situation who 
you know, they should be trying to bring chase basically. Oh uh, yeah. Most definitely. And it's always fun to see which players go where and they could make it happen. Like last year, Blake Griffin was really fun watching him on Brooklyn. Like he definitely helped out a lot there to get them to that game seven. No, it was smart for him. I mean, you know, he had to give a lot of money up, but he has a lot of money. So it's like, he doesn't need <laughs> all of it. And he actually doesn't have to play for Detroit. And, you know, he gets to go have another chapter. I mean, I think that the buyout stuff has really got to a place where, you know, you're helping teams get out of bad decisions and you're helping players save time, you know, and, you know, the clock is ticking on a player like Blake Griffin. He knows that he's not going to be able to play until he's 40. Um, he's had so many injury issues. And so, you know, just, you know, wasting away in Detroit makes no sense. And, you know, you're, you've seen a lot of players. Drummond's another good example of just kind of coming to that same conclusion and being proactive with it. And I think it's, you know, relatively good for the NBA in most cases, um, you know, because, you know, teams that need to save money have been able to save money too. And, you know, the Pistons have to worry about that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, to kind of get an undo button can be very helpful. Ben, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I know you got a Laker game to get to. You got to beat that traffic. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Take care. And uh, it, was, it was great talking to you. I hope you guys all enjoyed that interview with Ben. Guy is just simply a grinder. I mean, starting back 2007 when there was really nothing to go with besides a blog. A lot of people at that time, you know, yeah, they were starting them, but they weren't really such a thing as they are in 2021 or in the last like six, seven years. But Ben went out there, he hustled in. Best thing about his story is he didn't really know anybody in the sports industry and, you know, he just went with it. He hustled and, and that's what it simply takes. Sometimes, you know, you're not going to know somebody or have a way through something, but if you really love something and you go after it, you know, you, the hard work is going to show and people are going to notice. And that's what Ben did here. I hope you guys all enjoyed the interview and please go check out his book, Bubble Ball. If you're a big basketball fan, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. And I look forward to seeing you guys all next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with those that love sports.